Well, our sermon text today, uh, in your printed guide, if you're in person, I've given you a book that you can read over. Uh, there's a lot of textual material. Um, we are talking about um, the, the kind of blasphemy, how to respect God's name. And in this series, we started talking about the Ten Commandments, that the way you respect God's name is like quite important, that even the Ten Commandments would list about how you respect God's name. Um, and then last week, we, we read Nehemiah's summary version of that same Exodus story of those people in the wilderness uh, just already breaking those commandments, already uh, blaspheming God. And so today we, we are talking about the consequences of this sin, of the consequences of blasphemy. Uh, and it's on our trajectory because we're going through the season of Lent and eventually Jesus is going to be charged with blasphemy. And we have to appreciate and understand what that charge, what that accusation is all about uh, and why it's such a grave thing. And so our starting place, I just think that maybe in our Christian circles, I think a lot of us are probably uh, assume, I, I don't know how we got to this place, but I think a lot of us assume that all sins are created equal. Uh, and there's this kind of dynamic that happens because we believe that Christ um, forgives us of all of our sins and therefore like all of our sins created separation with God, and, but yet we're all brought back together, and so we kind of like put on one level all sorts of sin. Uh, but that's actually not really true to what's going on in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And so today we're gonna talk about the fact that blasphemy has quite a, a strong um, uh, indicator of, of sin and of disruption to the community. And so we're actually gonna start in Leviticus 24, uh, Leviticus is a book that many Christians probably don't spend a ton of time reading. Uh, if you were in a synagogue and you were reading the Torah, you'd get a lot of material from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but we don't spend too much time here. Uh, and so you might be surprised if you read through Leviticus 24 verses 10 and following that it's going to talk about blasphemy and it's going to talk about consequences of sin and how you punish people based on their sins. And it does throw, so through case law, which is, it's not all like the Ten Commandments where it just says, like, thou shalt not. Um, it, there's often a story of something wrong has happened, now what do we do? And so it's kind of really baked into practical experience of, of what do we do now that this problem has occurred? And so in the story, there's two people who get in a fight, and one of them it says who had a, they had a mother who was Israelite and a father who was Egyptian. It's kind of quirky that it brings this up into the story. Um, but this, this man gets in a fight with another man, and eventually the man curses and blasphemes the name of God in the midst of this quarrel, in the midst of this fight. And it startles the people there, and they bring him to Moses, they put him in custody, and they ask, well, what do we do with them? Like, what do we do with this person? We're like, we know we're not supposed to blaspheme. He just did. Well, now what? All right, because we had a commandment about it, but what's the consequences of this? And I, I can't help but have a little side note here of this man who had uh, a mother who was Israelite and, one who, and a father who was Egyptian. The story keeps trying to say punishments are the same no matter who you are and no matter how much a part of our community that you are. Um, but you could imagine people wondering, are we gonna punish him differently because we're not quite sure about how pure he is in our community? 
Uh, and so that kind of challenge would come up. And so them bringing this into the discussion is already interesting. But the community wants to know, how do we uh, respond to blasphemy? Now, what happens in this passage is a lot of different levels of consequences. And so there's this principle that what type of sin you make is responded to with a different type of punishment. So if you do something small, you get a small punishment, and it just keeps leveling out. Uh, The main kind of principle here is that if you do this, this kind of level of problem, that we don't come at you with a consequence that is greater than the mistake. So here's what Leviticus 24 kind of coldly talks about. Uh, It says, anyone who kills a human being shall be put to death. So here's equal. Death means death. If you kill an animal, though, you need to make restitution for it, a life for a life. Presumably, if you've killed an animal, you need to pay to buy another animal for this person to replace it. Anyone who um, fractures, there's a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. So this is the principle of like, let's limit the pain to at least the level of the injustice. And then you might say, well, okay, well, what's the level of injustice for blasphemy? Because you're like, did it hurt somebody and how did it hurt somebody? Right, because if, if blasphemy is like a sin of disrespect to God's name, you're like, did God really get hurt? So you could wonder like, well, what should be the consequence? Because I think God can handle it. Um, but blasphemy gets one of the highest uh, punishments. Uh, there's not too many sins in the Bible that gets a death penalty warrant, and yet blasphemy is one of them. And so uh, they make this ruling. Uh, here's what uh, Leviticus 24 says that the Lord tells Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp, let all who are within hearing lay their hands on his head, and then let the whole congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, anyone who curses God shall bear the sin. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. And later it says, Moses spoke thus to the people. They took the blasphemer outside the camp, stoned him to death, and the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. I remember earlier I said, we don't often read from Leviticus. Um, There's a way in which we get really comfortable with our scripture because we don't read things that make us uncomfortable. Like, so many people are like, oh, the Bible's so easy. If we'd all just read the Bible, we'd all get along, we'd all understand what to do with it. But like, there's some really difficult texts. And so, um, we get blasphemy here and other kinds of passages about disrespecting your parents and you get this kind of stoning scene of like that this disrespect for the system is what's at stake because like if God orders society to be good if you disrespect God you are throwing the whole system into potential chaos that if we disrespect God well what will we hold on to what how will we behave how will society stick together like you're putting the society all of the community at risk and so the community is put into this consequence that the community rejects this disrespect, rejects this disruption, and punishes the person with this fatal punishment, with death. Uh, And that's, you know, a grave consequence. There's the pun. Uh, So that's very serious. So already when we think maybe as we get towards, towards Good Friday, and when we see throughout the Gospels, people keep charging Jesus with blasphemy, 
they're charging him with something that they're saying the community should get together and stone you. And so that is a high level of consequence that gets attached to blasphemy. All right, I, I told you that Leviticus and a lot of these laws, they like to do these laws in a case study. Let's tell a story and then how do we deal with it? And so we got our case law. If someone blasphemes God, you get this community judgment of stoning. So let's skip forward in time uh, to the story of Eli and Samuel and Eli's sons. We're dealing with a time before the monarchy of Israel. So we're like, let's say pre-1000 BC is the, the story time. And in this time, um, they are being kind of loosely run by priests and prophets and judges, people that kind of come up and, and rule and show God's picture for, the, for their society. And in this time, it's Eli. Eli is 98 years old. He is a seasoned veteran priest. And he's got two sons who are primarily running things now as he is with old age. And they live in the land of Shiloh, and his sons' names are Hophni and Phinehas. And so he's, he's got his sons, and they're living out the priesthood. We're going to hear how they're failing at that. But he's also mentoring and raising Samuel. If you know Samuel, Samuel's parents had, had difficulties having a child, and when they had a child, they dedicated Samuel to the Lord and, and, and asked that Eli and the priesthood would raise up their son and that he would be dedicated to the Lord's service. So Eli's got two sons, and he's also raising Samuel in a way. And the Bible's bluntness in this verse, I can't help but share it with you. 1 Samuel 2.12 starts, Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. Like, you know, it's not really holding back here. The, the text does not think highly of Eli's sons, of Hophni and Phinehas. It says, They had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priests of the people. Um, the spoiler alert, later this, what they're doing is going to get summarized as they blasphemed the Lord. What did they do? Uh, I find this really fascinating because we don't spend a lot of time in some of these intricate, like, precise ways that the law was lived out. Uh, but here in Shiloh, um, they're offering sacrifices to the Lord. And maybe you've thought about sacrifices and you've never thought about the nitty-gritty, like, wait, how did that exactly happen? But here in Shiloh... Um, when you, when you made a sacrifice, the fat of the animal that you were sacrificing would be burned up, and the idea is it kind of disappears, it goes off, the smoke flies up to the heavens, that God receives the fatty portions of this animal, and then you're like cooking the rest of this animal, and in Shiloh, they're, they're boiling it, um, but they're cooking the meat, and then you would consume this animal that was sacrificed. It was a meal, and I kind of like the image of how do we restore order where things have broken down? We have a meal together. Like, we come back together. We have a meal with God. We've got a meal with our neighbors. We have a meal with a priest who's, like, speaking on our behalf. Like, we are bringing people back together through this sacrifice meal. Well, this meal is being abused by Eli's sons. So you had this practice that for Samuel 2 tells that you're boiling the animal, and the priest was supposed to bring, let's say, like a fork, and just reach down in that pot, and whatever meat they got was what they got. It's kind of like a blind luck chance. You're like, I don't know. I, man, I really love this portion of the animal, but I just got to stick the fork in there, and we'll see what, what ends up being my meal. But 
you know, Eli's sons weren't content with that. They had a little bit of their own selfish gluttony or whatever it is, and they decided before we even burn up the fat of the animal to God, before it goes in this, let me see what you got, and I want to cut off my portion now. And so they were taking the best portion of the animal for themselves. And so this thing that's meant to be offering to God and meant to restore that person to whatever sins they've committed to God and to their neighbor, um, they were taking from it themselves. And they were getting the choice meal. Now, you might offer a sacrifice, and you might also want the best part of the meal yourself. Uh, people are getting a little bit angry and frustrated because they're like, wait, you're, you're messing with my sacrifice. And so if somebody told them, it says in the text, if someone said, let them burn the fat first, like, hey, let me offer the part to God first, and then I'll let you pick. I'll, I'll still let you pick, but, but let God get God's portion first. Um, Eli's sons would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. So they not only disrespected God's sacrifice and this, this practice that was supposed to bring healing to people and bring uh, people together, um, but they threatened violence towards people. Like they were escalating the way in which they uh, were, were sinning. And so it says in, the, in verse 17, the, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. And in those summary words I said earlier, they were blaspheming God. There's almost a little bit of a hint of this if you know New Testament's, like kind of the backgrounds of New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about uh, communion early on was just like a feast where people would eat together. And they were eating together, and those who made more money could get off work earlier, and they'd eat all the best food, and there'd be nothing left for those who were poor in the community. And Paul finds this just abhorring, and he's like, how, how could you do this to people? Like, hey, wait on each other, um, eat your meal together. And so this kind of disrespect to a foundational part of what brings healing to each other uh, was seen as blasphemy. And so Eli even recognizes, like, hey, kids, this is terrible. And so he recognizes this, and he says to them, if you sin against somebody else, so if you sin against someone, someone will act as an intercessor for that dispute. And usually God will. But if you sin against God, like, who's going to intercede on your behalf? And obviously, as Christians, we hear that, and we start thinking already about Jesus and ways about um, the ways that God uh, is kind of seen as interceding on our behalf through Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, but the point here that Eli's making is, like, this is a grave thing that you're doing. You, you are sinning against God. And according to Leviticus 24, you would expect... The communal response then is to grab the stones, to stone them, and to kind of exert justice on these, uh, these sons of Eli. But we don't actually get that in the story. And that's where it always gets interesting. The Bible is actually quite fascinating. How do we make sense of what to do with the Bible? And the Bible itself is interpreting its own earlier stories. And so. I want us to kind of move forward in the story to the children's story that if you went to Sunday school growing up, you probably heard this story, but you heard the clean Sunday school version of this story, and that's the story of Samuel, and he's got this nighttime, he's sleeping, he hears the voice of the Lord saying his name, and he gets up and he's like, hey, Eli, um, did you call for me? And Eli three times is like, no, I didn't call for you, go back to sleep. You can imagine parents when your kids get up in the middle of the night. Hey, uh, did, did you call my name? 
go back to sleep. <laughs> no. And finally, on the third time, Eli's like, wait a minute, something's going on. You're hearing something. Maybe it's the Lord speaking to you. If you hear the voice again, if you hear it a fourth time, say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. And our children's stories end there usually. Because <laughs> like, if you haven't read this text today, I'm wondering if you can complete what happens after that. Because we all say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And then we completely ignore the rest of the story where we would be listening to what God had to say, which is so ironic. And so Samuel goes and he lays down and he says, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And here's what God says. See, I'm about to do something new in Israel that will make the ears of anyone who hears it tingle. And you probably think this is sounding like good news, uh, and it is, but in a very strange kind of way. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told Eli that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel, I love that it includes this note, laid there until morning, opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Like, this was not like a feel-good message to get for little Samuel. Uh, Samuel gets this message of, I am judging Eli and his household because they have blasphemed God. And that news is going to ring out in everybody's ears because everyone is going to hear this. And they're hearing it as good news because injustice has been done on them. Eli's sons have corrupted the system that has made healing and forgiveness known in their, in their, in their context. Can you imagine how hard of a story or how hard it would be to be Samuel in this story? Like the feel good of like, oh yeah, listen to God. But like the after effect of this of like, how do I go to my 98-year-old mentor and say, God just pronounced judgment on your family? Like that's a hard message. That's a hard story. And I, I think about like, what's a time in your life where you've been just afraid of saying something that you know to be true, but you just feel awkward about it, you just don't know how to say it. And I was thinking about um, when I was in third grade, uh, when I was in third grade, I had to go to the principal's office, not about me, thankfully, in this story. Um, a classmate, a third grader, said something very inappropriate about a classmate, uh, something that was above their age level, uh, physical in nature, and it was kind of made known that he said this, but you kind of have to know, like, wait, did this actually happen? So the principal calls everybody in, what did you hear? And as a third grader, and you're just like, how do I say this thing that I've been told you don't say this kind of thing? <laughs> right, and so it's like, here's a phrase I'm not supposed to say, how do I say this to a principal, like, authoritative figure? And you feel like shame in the, even just having to say it. But it's like, well, it's true, it happened, we have, to, we have to say this. And I appreciate that in kind of rabbinic Judaism of, of Jewish law of like, how do we talk about blasphemy? How do we kind of, so to speak, bring someone to justice? How do we tell on someone who's blasphemed? Because like, I don't want to say the thing that he said. Right, you can get to like the conundrum there of like, if you said the wrong thing, I don't want to say it to report you. 
And so there's all this kind of practice. And I, I love it that um, the, the practice in the court would be we would create a safe word, so to speak. So let's say instead of saying Jesus' name, I'll say Jose. So I'll replace a name there so you can say this thing and it won't feel as bad. But ultimately, once they've said, yes, blasphemy has occurred, once we know that, they'll ask everyone who doesn't need to be in the room to leave. Only the most important figures who have to rule on this, the most important witnesses have to be in the room. And they go to the oldest person in the room and say, oldest witness, what exactly did you hear? And they would say what actually was said, and if it was blasphemy as they've gotten to that point, they would then tear their robes and, and despair of the fact that someone had disrespected God's name in that way. And they wouldn't make anybody else say it. They'd go to the next person and say, did you hear that? Yes. Did you hear that? Yes. But that it mattered to speak the truth that something bad had happened and that injustice uh, had seeped into the system and needed to be called out. And so I feel for Samuel of like, this is an awful situation to be in. I'm sure he wished things were a lot more happier, cheerful, but he gets this message. And so the next morning happens, Eli walks up to Samuel and you wonder if Samuel's avoiding him or not. <laughs> but Eli walks up and he says, Samuel, my son. Don't you know that language hurt? Because like you just heard about how his sons have, have acted wrong. And when he comes to you and you get this father-like figure, he says, Samuel, my son. And like he says to God, he says, here I am. And he, he had mistaken God's voice for Eli's voice. And he's got to talk to this, this father figure. Eli says, what was it that God told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do to you more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And it said that, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. I think that we can feel the like, weight of that situation. And I think that there's something to say to us about the way we talk about injustice in the world, the way we talk about sin. Like, it's not like, yay, I caught you in something, and I get to rejoice because I've, I've, I've figured you out, I've found out your flaw. Like, it is not something to delight about. It is a sad thing that we all end up falling short, that we all end up messing things up, but then we hit those markers of something that we've done that's so wrong that it's so shameful that, that the community has to bring it to light to deal with it, to heal from it. And so we should not be delighting and pointing out anyone's sins. Um, but ultimately, we are called to speak truth. We're all called to, to speak where injustice happens. And some things are so big that you just can't avoid talking about it. You know, we, we're so used to the New Testament image of like, hey, don't notice the speck in someone else's eye before you notice the log in your own. That, even then, different levels of sin, right? Logs versus specks. When there is a log, it must be dealt with, it must be faced. And so we should speak the truth regardless of someone's age. I can imagine people saying, you know, Eli's 98. Why do we got to mess with Eli? Let him be. Um, but no matter the age, no matter their title, he's a priest, a prophet of the people. No matter their relationship to us, he's a beloved kind of father-like figure to Samuel. It is important to speak the truth because healing can only happen through actually confronting the wrongs that have happened. And so when we talk about 
problems in this world, let us have a spirit that's, that's broken about that sin, that's not taking delight that we've kind of figured out somebody that we can shame in our culture, but like, let's recognize the gravity of the problem. And so when I think about, like, there are messages that I don't feel excited to talk about. Uh, like when we have to call out idolatry or call out the ways in which people march with signs about how God is operating in the world that is clearly not how God operates in the world, that's not something that brings joy. That's the thing that brings sadness of like, I wish the world wasn't that way. Uh, but things need to be recognized in the community. They need to be declared to be uh, sin, need to be declared to be not what God would have the world be. I, I mentioned that we were expecting stoning. So like maybe, maybe there's something weirder of like, well, Samuel didn't go grab stones. In this story, there's a different kind of punishment that happens, uh, both whether it's in Samuel's message or in that chapter earlier. A person of God comes to Eli and tells him specifically his family is going to die by the sword. That doesn't sound too lovely either. I don't know if you're picking between stones or swords, which you'd prefer. Um, but what happens in the next chapter is Israel goes to war with, Philist with the Philistines. And they go to war and they think, we want God on our side. So they say, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. We know if we bring God in, God will make us victorious. We'll win in battle. We'll defeat our enemies. And don't you know who brings the Ark of the Covenant but the priests? Eli's sons. And so the loss in battle is seen as judgment that God is not actually with you. You think you're bringing God with you and the ark gets taken from them and God's presence on the seat gets moved to the Philistines and Eli's sons die in battle. 30,000 soldiers die in battle. And when Eli hears of the story, it says he falls back, breaks his neck, and dies. And it's this weird image of you know, this community that's supposed to enact justice on you, there is a pivot in this story to God will bring justice. Maybe I don't have to be the one to cast stones, but ultimately something will bring the consequences of sin uh, and, and bring judgment here. And this still feels uh, pretty negative for us. We are still on the road towards Good Friday, towards Easter. Um, but I do think it's worth at least noting that people were not looking at, can I figure out how to get my stones and, and stone someone to death? We have stories in the New Testament. We've got Saul alongside Stephen's martyrdom. Uh, we have instances where people are going to accuse Jesus and want to execute Jesus. Um, but here is a community who sees blasphemy and doesn't just go running to let's execute someone. And so um, we all have to be careful about the way we interpret texts, interpret uh, the Bible, and interpret commandments, and interpret judgment and justice. And so within the biblical tradition, they're figuring out how to make sense of what do I do with the story, um, and we are as well. And so I, I know that we have so much more to say on this. This story leaves us in somewhat of a dark-feeling place of just judgments pronounced. But I hope we maybe take the gravity of this kind of story with us as we read Jesus' stories as we get into next week and the following weeks. 
of like, if you're going to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, you're throwing this situation onto them. That either we're getting our stones together or God's going to judge you because you're, you deserve death. And that's the severity in which they take uh, blasphemy's importance. It, it's so grave to result in such a thing. Now, I don't want to just leave us in that spot. So a, a note on forgiveness as a glimpse of something before we get to Good Friday and Easter. Uh, the Old Testament passages here was trying to figure out how to bring forgiveness. They're sacrificial systems, and they were being violated, but they were working to bring people together to heal. Um, but ultimately, in the New Testament, we see something that we think uh, uh, is even a fuller expression of healing and sacrifice in the story of Jesus. Uh, but Paul maybe has a word for us that might be worth remembering, that yes, you are forgiven, yes, God's forgiveness can go to you for all who accept it, but that doesn't mean to just kind of spit in the face and disrespect God by then just living however you want and doing whatever uh, sinful things, you know, and, and Paul writes to the churches in Rome and church in Corinth about, like, let's not mock God by continuing to sin. And he has this thing about, well, if grace abounds and we're forgiven of everything, well, maybe if I sin more, grace is abounding more. So maybe it's actually in my interest to just sin as much as possible to show how great God's grace is. And Paul's like, are you, are you kidding? <laughs> like, why on earth would you want to sin more? You have died to sins and raised to life in Christ through baptism and this new life. Sin doesn't have a hold on you. Live out God's calling for your life. Leave behind sin. And so I just want to invite us um, who have become comfortable with grace and mercy to remember that when we, when we harm somebody, like there's a real weight to it. Uh, because we shouldn't discount the ways that our, our violence to each other, uh, the ways our, our ridicule, our shaming, our, our hates, our anger, our impatience, the ways that those bring real injury to people. Um, and so let us remember that there is a gravity to the way we live our life and that uh, thankfully also um, there is a greater forgiveness down the horizon in our story as well. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I find value in us wrestling and sitting with difficult stories. Uh, I, I don't feel like we should sugarcoat our spirituality, our faith to each other, because you are not living a sugar-coated life. If you face challenges, if you face struggles, it's worth knowing that in your Bible are people facing similar struggles and challenges, similar like, what do I do with this? And so if you've ever had someone misuse you and who has abused you, who has been violent towards you, has been like Eli's sons and has gotten in the way of you and God, and for those who have had ministers and those who are supposed to be faith leaders who have done that, uh, that's not okay. Like, it, it's not all right for them to have misused God's name uh, in the way that they've dealt with you. Um, if you've felt like you just don't know how to uh, ring in your kids. <laughs> this is a story of like, Eli's actually a great priest, like father figure, but like he doesn't know how to figure out how to get through to his kids on this. And there's a way to find yourself into that story of like, I, I don't know how to, 
how to convey my faith over? How do I help my kids live out the faith like I wish they would? If you've had your father figures let you down, you might feel like Samuel. You might find some relief there. Uh, but ultimately, no one gets to be like better than. We're all on this equal ground. And Samuel's going to have his own kids turn on him. And so we are all in this messiness together. And I think all in this messiness longing for what Christ brings. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited as we get into next week and we start hearing about Christ and forgiveness in the midst of these accusations of blasphemy. Uh, maybe we will appreciate even more afresh what Christ invites us into and our churches into. And so uh, if you, before I close, if you just have some prayer time this week, I'm going to make two suggestions. Prayers that Eli says that I think if you would pray this, it might be bringing meaning to your life this week. The first one is what he told Samuel. It is, the, uh, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. When judgment gets pronounced on him, it's like, man, a bad day's coming. Uh, that it is well with our soul kind of lyric, right? That even the worst pronouncement, be like, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. That kind of acceptance is something that would be a powerful thing to be praying throughout the week. And the other thing is the other thing he told Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So if throughout the week if you say, Lord, I'm listening, I, I want to hear your voice, I want wisdom, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so I hope that we all can join on this journey towards Easter and join the journey that is filled with people of faith who have gone before us, who have wrestled with God, who have wrestled with their own sin, who have longed for the healing forgiveness of God. And would you join me in prayer? Lord God, your mercy and your grace, uh, Lord, help us to remember it, help us to experience it, help us to feel it. Uh, we often hide from our worst days, we hide from the things that we've done that have hurt our friends, hurt our family, hurt our coworkers, hurt our neighbors. And Lord, you bring healing and you cover over and you bring forgiveness. But Lord, help us to not just overlook the great depths of your mercy. And Lord, help us not to overlook those depths as we look on our neighbors, on our friends, on our coworkers, on our family, that when they hurt us, when they harm us, Help us to not take the delight or joy in their downfall, but to see them through your eyes, to see them through eyes that want their healing and that want a new day. Lord, I ask that anyone who's in the, worshiping with us that uh, has experienced the, the harm that has come from, from leaders, from spiritual leaders, from all sorts of authority figures in their life when they've abused their power, Lord, I ask that you might bring uh, a healing touch to those individuals. Lord, help us to, to trust again when our trust has been mis misused and abused. Lord, we long to see your healing fully lived out in this world around us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.